Hello, I'm Hi Phil everyone. Sorry. I'm Phil McAleer. I'm Anne McElhenney. We have some very exciting news for you. Uh, we want you to listen to this video we recorded earlier. Please. Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McAleer. And we're so excited to bring you the My Son Hunter movie. Uh, the movie about Hunter Biden that blows the lid and exposes the Biden family corruption. And we've just filmed the movie in Serbia. You are going to love it. Now it's a movie, not a documentary, and it's being directed by veteran Hollywood actor Robert Davi. You probably know him uh, as one of the greatest Bond villains, or he was his role in The Goonies. He was also in Die Hard. He's been in almost every movie of the last forty or fifty years. Uh, he's brought a lot to this movie, and we also it stars British actor Lawrence Fox, who who really inhabits the role of Hunter Biden and captures him in all his not so great glory it also we have gina carano now you probably remember her from the star wars series the mandalorian and then they tried to cancel her because she wouldn't follow the script well thanks to you they haven't succeeded she's in this movie uh, we're so delighted to have her and she's so committed to telling the truth it's and we also have john james playing the role of joe biden the fumbling bumbling role of joe biden in this movie and he's absolutely amazing john james you'll remember was jeff colby in dynasty or as you Americans say, Dynasty, yes. uh, back in the 80s. And he is absolutely uh, a joy. Yeah. So best of all, this film is crowdfunded. By well, you. Yeah, by you. You have made this film possible. And we thank you for that. But that's why we're coming back to you now. It's really crucial and critical that this film is seen by as many people as possible. That's why we're announcing a stretch goal of $250,000 to get it out to as many people as possible. Don't forget, this story before the last election. It was suppressed by the mainstream media, it was suppressed by big tech, and was suppressed by Hollywood. Well, the cover-up stops now. We need your help. We need, we need the stretch goal to make sure we can get the movie to, as, to the millions of people who need to know the truth, especially coming up to this election year and, and beyond. So and so it's very easy for you to do it right now, is go to mysonhunter.com. Go to mysonhunter.com and give what you can today. It's tax, it's a tax deductible. Yes. We're a 501c3. Um, so a tax deductible donation because you probably know the truth. We know that you know the truth because you listen to us a lot and you listen and you're very informed. But lots of people do not know this. As Phelan said, this was suppressed. We need to get this story out to the people who don't know. And we're doing that in an entertaining way with your help. Go to mysonhunter.com and give what you can right now. Thank you. Thank you. There Thank you, you so much. Thank you so much for all your help. Now we have the stretch goal, as we said. We need to get this movie out to as many people as possible. Go to mysonhunter.com. Uh, give what you can. Give what you can, please. We're so grateful. So and we'll grateful. now go on to the rest of the show. To, to the main podcast. Let's, uh, let's go right into the podcast, please. Hi, my name is Anne McElhenney. And I'm Philip McAleer. And welcome to the Anne and Philip Scoop. Yes, hope you enjoyed our little intro there, a little video about the wonderful, uh, the new stretch goal for the Hunter Biden movie. It's important that it's made, as we said in the video. So please... Please give what you can. We're yes. so grateful to you. We've got this far and the, the film is just extraordinary. Yes. So please pay it forward and help us get this film to as many people as possible. Thank you. We can't do it without you. So thank you so much. So what's on what's, so what's, what's on the agenda today? Yes. Uh, well, we're going we're, we're going uh, to have... Well, it's, it's January. Oh, I should mention. We should actually, of course, mention that. Of course, I was trying to maybe avoid that film. Mm. Um, it's January uh, 2022 and it's 96 weeks 
almost two years since the two weeks to flatten the curve mm. lockdown. Mm. Two months and it'll be two years. And for those of you who are paying very, very close attention, you might notice that uh, we were maybe giving the numbers incorrectly. We, white woman. Me, white woman. Yes, I was the one doing that. So, um, yes, yeah, some arithmetic so was... you didn't do honours maths. I did do honours maths, Philem, but uh, thank you for pointing that out uh, inaccurately. But anyway, so it actually is, and I obviously have checked this now a number of times, it's 96 weeks. Uh, I, had a, I had added a couple of extra weeks to that, ah, for good measure. But honestly, it's... I think we everything, are, everything just seemed longer in COVID, you know? It's, it's, it's a long time. It's nearly two years, basically. Um, later in the show, we are going to be talking to. We have a wonderful, wonderful interview. Yeah, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, uh, and it's particularly poignant. It's amazing we organised it uh, and got it in in view of the. He, he's going to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism and where it's coming from. You won't want to miss this, especially given the events in the Texas synagogue at the yeah. weekend. Yeah, and Anne, you and just- and should we all move to Florida? You know. Um, a wonderful article that I would urge everyone to read in the um, Wall Street Journal. In the Wall Street Journal this past weekend, uh, and I have a simple recipe, and I have a very simple recipe. And as you know, we're still in Ireland working on the top secret project. Yes, and let's have some looks of a look at some beautiful pictures of Ireland. The weather has been enormously mild, wonderful, extraordinary, and we. Um, Yes, and in in kind of in in uh, tribute to being in Ireland, of course, it's a potato recipe, very yes, simple, yes. almost a no recipe recipe. But anyway, so um, what but else? let's go over right now um, yeah, to the interview with Rabbi Yaakov Menken. We were, we were so we, lucky. We recorded it earlier. It's, yeah. it's you let's won't want to miss this. Exactly, he's a lovely guy. Actually. What a lovely person. Let's go over to that now. So, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, and I hope I pronounced the name correctly, is the managing director of the Coalition for Jewish Values. He's the co-founder and editor of Cross Current, uh, an online journal of Orthodox Jewish thought and opinion. Uh, his works have appeared in uh, many places. Uh, you've probably seen him in The Federalist, The New York Observer, Observer, American Thinker, and The Jerusalem Post. Uh, we're particularly pleased to have him on the podcast uh, after what happened last weekend in Texas, the situation uh, uh, demanding the release of a prisoner. I want to talk, we'll talk about that later. Um, welcome to the show, Rabbi Mankin. Thank you so much for having me. You've written a lot about anti-Semitism from the left in America and how across the world it's been ignored or downplayed. You know, is there a rise in anti-Semitism uh, or is it just, is it now being allowed to show its face? And where is this anti-Semitism coming from? So I don't think that anybody doubts that there's been a nasty rise in anti-Semitism. The, the statistics are there worldwide. Um, that is becoming more and more open. Um, when you ask about which side it's coming from, the, I mean, the truth of the matter is it's always hiding on, on all sides. Uh, certainly in America, you see that there are conservative politicians and liberal politicians who are absolutely willing to share anti-Semitic thoughts, especially when they think that Jews aren't listening. Um, but at the same time, uh, it, what we definitely have seen is that the latest facade for anti-Semitism, the latest thing that gives it palatability in the minds of the, the you know the people who are not focused on these ideas, uh, is the is, is definitely now more associated with one side. Uh, that would be the political left, definitely in America, but also in the, in Europe. That there's just a alarming acceptance of anti-Semitism, which always finds a, a facade. I've, I've just read a book, uh, Jews Don't Count by David Badil, who's a British comedian, 
most Americans wouldn't have heard of him. Um, but, you know, he's written a book, Jews Don't Count. And, and I read it and I, because my background is British, Irish. I had kept an eye on the last general election in Britain. And I'd heard comments about the British Labour Party being anti-Semitic. And I didn't really believe it. I, I thought that people uh, to, you know, were weaponizing careless conversations. And, you know, and people, people do that. They do that with race in America. They weaponize innocent, as they, they call them microaggressions, where you don't know what, what you're saying. And I thought that. But when you looked at what Jeremy Corbyn was supporting and what he was refusing to condemn, there's almost no innocent explanation for it. He felt comfortable. Uh, and he didn't feel compelled to condemn anti-Semitism. And to me, that was a shock. But you're saying that is a common thread now with, with the left in America and in Europe? Uh, it, you know, it's absolutely true. Let's take our, you know, rewind a century so that we take this out of the realm of politics for a minute. And in the, in the lead up to Nazi Germany, uh, is, that is, in fact, when the term anti-Semitism came to be. Because throughout the Middle Ages in, in Europe, uh, the common trope was that the Jews killed uh, the Christian God, that the Jews uh, needed the blood of a Christian child to make their matzahs, which is, you know, it, it, these things were particularly egregious because, you know, anybody who knows anything about matzah, you can only have flour and water. You can't have yeast in there. You can't have eggs. You can't have salt. You can't have butter. You certainly can't have blood in there. I mean, it was just, you know, insanity, but it doesn't. That's the bottom line about anti-Semitism. So the in the German era, anti-Semitism was this idea that we don't hate the Jews because of religion, because in the days of the Enlightenment, if Protestants and Catholics have to get along, they have to get along with Jews and everybody else also. So they say, it's not about that. It's about the Jews are not white. They're not European. They're Semites. And we, we despise their inferior ethnicity. And all the familiar hateful tropes about Jews found new life in this idea of anti-Semitism. Well, today you can't have ethnic bigotry either. So what, what's, a, what's a good Jew hater to do? They, find, they need to find a new palatable way to say the same things. So they mm -hmm. don't say it about Jews. They say it about Israel and they say it about what they call Zionism. But their version of Zionism has nothing to do with Herzl or Jabotinsky. It has to do with the basic idea in the Jewish religion of the prayer to return to Zion, which faithful Jews recite three times a day as part of our daily prayers. It's, a, it's right in there in the prayer book that we're going to rebuilding of Jerusalem, restoration of the Davidic kingdom, rebuilding of the Holy Temple. All of that is laid out. And by the way, I have an ongoing Twitter thread. It's found every day in the Talmud. Mm -hmm. it's just, this is just a basic Jewish idea that they find as a focal point of their attack and then a way to regurgitate the same hateful ideas. Funny, that was kind of going to be my next question. You kind of answered, you know, so this is not, this is new, but not new. You know, this is because in the twenties and thirties, you could be polite and anti-Semitic, you know, in the drawing room. Now you can't, uh, but you can uh, attack Israel. I would say, you know, it's, I think it's. I think it's. It's. I think it's all. I think it's almost tolerable now to be the kind of anti-ethnic Jew, anti. Um, 
because we just watched the TV. We were a big. We were yeah, big, I was going to say. I was going to say that the Hollywood, you know, Hollywood depictions of Jews in the recent, in the in the very recent past, have been kind of shocking to me, particularly Orthodox Jews. You seem to have. I mean, it seems to be an extraordinary. And I always thought that Hollywood was run. We were, we've always been told, right, that Hollywood's run by Jews. Well, then you have these two Netflix shows, right? You have Unorthodox, and then is it My Unorthodox Life? Plus, Correct. we saw a procedural, an NBC procedural called Nurses, which I, had these. Well, let, let me. Let, so the, the Nurses one. Um, yeah. I, I'm, are you familiar with you the guys? Nurses are one? you you are very familiar with these? You've obviously yes. done some research to see no, no, exactly we, how this is going on. Sorry, no, you know, sorry, sorry, to confess, what it is is we watch an awful lot of bad television. And, 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 we enjoy, and all our friends are Jewish. This all is, our friends are Jewish. So we live in Los Angeles, and it's hilarious. All our friends are Jewish, and they're, they're, they go the spectrum of... Oh, yeah, we have all of them. We have the really proper Jews, like Dennis Prager, all the way down to, to our friends who are, Jew, who are Jewish, Jewish. According to themselves, ish. Jewish, yeah. but they right. actually are Jewish so, Jews, but they are but, ish. But we do watch an awful lot of TV, and I, and I was watching this TV series called Nurses, and uh, there was a there was a scene in it where I think it was a the guy was had needed a bone graft. A young the boy of the family. Yeah, and you happened you happened to see this live? You were just yes, watching, yes. and and there it came. No, we yes. saw this, and we were like, no, no. Let, let me let me explain. So I, I watched it. And, uh, I, I heard about it. I went and I, I don't even recall if I've seen the scene or just read a depiction of the scene. But go ahead. Do it in your oh, words. Look, you're you know, how do you make good drama? Right. You take real life and exaggerate it. Right. So we're used to seeing things. You know, some Catholic comes into a hospital and next, you know, you know 14 children. Yeah. And, and and they don't want, you know, and they're going to die. Or they don't want to have an abortion or whatever. They just take real life and really exaggerate it. So this Orthodox Jewish family came in. The guy needed a bone graft, and him and the father were having these conversations. Well, what if it's from uh, a, an a, Arab? No, what? And what if it's from a, a non-Jew? Non and what if it's from, and what if it's from a woman? And the, and the nurses, <sighs> even worse, what if it's from a, a woman who's an Arab? Right? And I thought, well, obviously, what they've done is they found some small sm sect of Orthodox Judaism, and and you and use that to smear all the rest of. Judaism. What I didn't know was they had completely invented this. That this didn't didn't exist even in some weird Jewish sect on top of a mountain with three people in it. Yeah, that's very true. To my knowledge, there is nobody who believes that it's contrary to everything we believe. Uh, that nurses invented this thing out of whole cloth. Um, the general trend that you find that, that you described. Uh, I would concur absolutely with the whole idea. And again, to go back to Germany, you know, once you're able to find that new veneer, like you said, you could be a polite anti-Semite in the 1920s, 1930s. All of a sudden, it's disgusting to be an anti-Semite because we've seen where that leads. So now the new thing, once you're anti-Israel, everything else is able to creep back in. And it's amazing the amount that you see, for example, on social media, where you replace Jew with Zionist and you have exactly the same classic words and classic tropes. And, you know, and of course, again, by their definition, I'm a Zionist and I don't subscribe to Herzl or Jabotinsky or anything else. I just believe that Jews ought to aim to live in the Holy Land. Why? Because we believe that for 3000 years. It's not because of some modern movement. It's certainly not ethnic colonialism. But to go back to what you were talking about, Look at Hollywood. 
And the average depiction of Orthodox Jews in Hollywood is indeed anti-Semitic, openly mm-hmm. so. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, not totally. just this this uh, episode of Nurses, which uh, described Jews mythologically and in a terrible way. You get yeah. this picture of this family as terrible people, and they thought it was totally acceptable to show this episode. Uh, yeah, but I then, wanna, I just want to, yeah, I just want to really um, talk about this because. At the time I watched it, I feel, you know, I watched it. I'm a journalist, right? And I, I could have I could have made a story out of that. Somebody somebody did watch it. Obviously, someone who knows Judaism better than I did and made a story. I was going, I had that. I saw that. I was looking at it. And we even DVR'd it. And I was thinking, I could have, you know, made a bit of a name for, for exposing this. But, you know, I, I listen, no matter what religion you have, you're going to get three people of a mountain, as I say, who believe that something really weird, and you can take that and pretend it's real, right? But they just, as you say, they, they invented this. So, so but it's the, not the, just, the anti-Semitism must be deep in them, right? But it's not just, and it's not, but it's not just that one. I mean, that the, as you know, as you're, you, I think you nodded your head. I think you've seen that unorthodox, and then my unorthodox life, which depict all on all Orthodox Jews as you know, like really, like an awful group of people, a dreadful, dreadful group of people. Who basically, you know, ruin women's lives. I mean, that's kind of, I think, the theme of both of those shows on Netflix. Um, what's been the response? I mean, are you know, are Jews standing up for themselves and saying to Hollywood, "What is going on what's here?" What's been the response of the Jewish establishment, say, the Anti-Defamation League? Well, the the, uh, the ADL has been entirely too muted on things like this because uh, it, it has itself become a very left-leaning organization. Uh, getting itself involved in all sorts of things that have nothing to do with anti-Semitism and really taking, unfortunately, from our perspective in the observant community, the wrong side on numerous issues. Um, Mm -hmm. If you look at, uh, you know, unorthodox created a a certain level of outrage because it was an individual person telling her side of an individual story where everyone in the surrounding community said, we know this family. That simply didn't happen. That's simply not what the way it was. My unorthodox Mm. life took it to a new level because this is a series, which, by the way, now, after all the backlash, has been signed to a second season by Netflix, which really tells you where they they, they stand and where they hold. Because everybody in the impacted community in Muncie, New York, this is a woman who claimed that she got no education in a school that offered AP courses and sent girls off to college. That's what they wanted to do. So it was complete and total fiction. Here we are again. And also this idea that she didn't have creative outlets and they had dance and they, and by the way, not only did they have dance, but this particular woman was known as being one of the leading dancers during her career in high school. So this entire story that she told was a whole cloth fabrication as far as the community was concerned. And there has been, and you can now find a hashtag online, there's something called My Orthodox Life, where a (laughs) series of women wrote back and said, wait a minute, we are professionals, we are doing this, we are out there and we're on social media and we're taking, you know, and by the way, not only do you have this backlash, then you have the backlash to the backlash. A bunch of self-proclaimed apologists who actually have social media as compared to all the women who are repressed and don't have access to social media, et cetera, et cetera, which is 
just moronic. Uh, why have they, you know, why there's been all these um, attacks on Orthodox Jews in New York? And, and you know, interesting, it seems to be to be not so much, it, it is anti-Semitic, but it's, it seems to be particularly zoned in to Orthodox Jews. And it seems to be coming from the African-American community a lot. Uh, and there's no mention of that tension that exists there and the reality of these attacks. Why is, you know, I, I read somebody, somebody descri described the ADL and those uh, as was it, official Jews. Uh, why has official Judaism been missing, you know, establishment Judaism been missing in action from this? Well, there's been a tension between the Orthodox community and what you call establishment Judaism for a very long time. I mean, from, from its earliest days, uh, the reform were in the business of, of denigrating orthodoxy. Uh, the, the reformation which began in Germany was this idea that, you know, we don't have to look so Jewish. We don't have to be so Jewish. We can be quote unquote normal like everybody else and we'll be more accepted that way. And of course they said that in Germany, how'd that work out for you? Uh, oh, but, you know, but at, at the same time, they were the ones who created the name orthodox which besides its use in certain churches, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, it also means stuck in your ways, patriarchal, you know, Orthodox is uh, un unchanging, just uh, stuck as it were, whereas they represented progress and change. This sort of denigration just continued. Now, it's unfair to say that the ADL has done nothing because in fact, the ADL, especially its New York, New Jersey chapter, has tried to do any number of things to kind of, you know, develop a, a better relationship and also get better reporting of anti-Semitism directed against Orthodox Jews. They're just in the process of now finally, you know, hiring a Hasidic liaison um, that I, I, I know that's in the queue somewhere. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and this idea that you're going to have somebody who's actually from the community and knows the community, uh, you know, if the ADL weren't at all interested, they wouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. But at the same mm -hmm. time, you have this, um, you know, since 2015, Jonathan Greenblatt, who now is the CEO of the organization, um, was brought in from a position in the Obama administration. He has a long history of support of progressive causes, a long uh, resume of progressive activism, no previous background in fighting anti-Semitism, unfortunately. Mm. Well, we, I mean, we could talk all day with this, but I suppose I want to bring us now to what happened last weekend. And I know this, I'm going to tell you how, how I saw it in real time, just in case anyone out there doesn't know what happened. There was a, a day-long hostage situation at the Congregational Beth Israel synagogue in Colleyville, uh, beside Fort Worth, Texas. It ended in gunfire. Uh, all the four hostages, including the rabbi, escaped. The suspect is dead, who is a, a British person. Uh, but one of the headlines I saw in the New York Times described it as an incident, which I thought- And not just in the New York Times, uh, pretty much all of the media outlets called it an incident. An incident. You know, so, you know, the, a bunch of guys storming the Capitol without guns is an incident. Uh, is it is, is insurrection? It insurrection. Insurrection, but, right? Uh, on in in a synagogue, that's an incident. But also, uh, but really, but also, got me with no, the other thing that was the yes. other thing that's extraordinary is the FBI special agent, as I'm sure you know, this special agent in charge, Max Sarno, came out very quickly and made this um, statement where he said that he believed the man was singularly focused on one issue, and it was not specifically related to the Jewish community, and he added. Uh, the FBI would continue to work to find a motive. And um, 
I, I just wanted to say, you know, if you look at the woman that he wanted to free, Aifa uh, 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 Siddiqui, uh, she's convicted in terrorism charges. Um, she was known as Lady Al-Qaeda. Um, she, she, when she went on trial, she was so, she was such a, a badass terrorist when she was being interrogated by soldiers in Iraq, British, uh, American soldiers, she managed to grab, it's like I did a TV, she managed to grab their rifle from them and, and shoot at them. So she was charged with attempted murder and many things. And by the way, she, she's alive because of American medical care after they shot her. Great. But the piece of, of biographical, I wonder, I wonder, was she, um, anyway, uh, the, the piece of biographical information that really stuck out to me was at her trial, she tried to have every member of her jury DNA tested to make sure that they had no Jewish blood in them. <laughs> Correct. Right? And this is the guy, then, so the guy who wants to rescue her, out of all the buildings and of all the gin joints in all the world, where does he go? He goes to a synagogue 26 miles from where happens to go walk there. into a synagogue and the FBI agent stands up and says, you know, we're it, really going to search. We're going to continue no, to no, search it, for a motive. A, for a motive for, for going into the synagogue. That's right. And no, that's idea. Like, no idea. No really. idea. I wonder, is there a G? Would there be something? Would there be anything else going on there? Would there anything else going on there? So I know they've now come back and said, yes, he definitely did target a synagogue. They just announced that there. But earlier. they were so fast to say they didn't understand the motive. Well, it's, you know, the thing is that if, if you look at it actually very strictly within the lines, what the field agent said was actually correct, meaning that the issue at hand, releasing Officer Siddiqui, had nothing to do with the Jewish community, nothing to do with Israel, had no connection whatsoever. Indeed, as you said, and not only at her trial did she try to exclude any possible Jews on the jury, when she was convicted, she said the verdict is from Israel and not from America. And this is, you know, it, again, it, it, this, the Israel and the Jews and the Jewish community had nothing to do with it from beginning to end. But it didn't matter because, you know, and, and this is the biggest proof that it was anti-Semitism. The very fact that the field agent was correct, that the issue that at hand that he was, so his supposed motive, what he was after, what he was demanding, had nothing to do with Jews and nothing to do with Israel. What's he doing in a synagogue? The answer is he hates Jews. It's a great way to go. If, if you're up against, uh, if you're fighting against civilized values, it's a great place to start. Yeah. So, um, look, uh, I could literally, we could literally all talk. What can be done? I want to you know, ask you to, to kind of wrap up. What can be done now uh, about this rise in anti-Semitism? Because we, we, we know where it ends. As you say, we know where it ends. And uh, uh, so what can, what, what can Jewish people do? What can non-Jewish people do? Well, you know, it does not only do we know where it ends, we also know where it begins. The fundamental Jewish, anti-Jewish myths, which have been true from time immemorial, uh, and in fact, if you open the Bible, it's the story of Laban and Jacob. Uh, the idea that all Jewish property is stolen, whatever the Jews have is stolen property, is the reason why Jews couldn't own property outside ghettos or have other professions during the Middle Ages. And it's why they are, quote unquote, stealing Palestine which of course is a name used by European colonialists to deny the indigenous Jews the attachment to their homeland, which is called Judea for a good reason. That's the same trope going back. 
And this idea, of course, that the Jews are the chosen people and therefore feel themselves superior to everybody else. If you know those two signs, and you can recognize anti-Semitism anywhere. And once you can, you can also point out that all the values of civilized society that really, if you look at every barbarian in the world, they all hate the Jews. From North Korea to Iran to Iraq, they all hate the Jews. And that's for a very good reason. If you want to have a civilized society, you have Jews around. I I didn't realize that North Korea hates the Jews. I actually do tell. I mean, I know that sounds terrible that I'm kind of shocked about. Tell me about about hating the Jews in North Korea. I I wasn't aware of that. It's not that anything exceptional. It's just that North Korea will regularly denounce Israel alongside any other trying to curry favor with the uh, with the, the 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 haters in the Arab world as well. And people like Iran, I mean, Iran and North Korea should be great friends with each other. They're both in the business of oppressing their own people and having hegemony over their uh, their own population, much less anybody else. Actually, one thing we didn't really talk about was how this new uh, new anti-Semitism is in is at the very we we talked on it and then we got the, I got the verdict from the UK but it's it's at the it's the heart at the heart of the leftist uh, establishment in America now like, with several Congress people uh, very very comfortable with repeating anti-Semitic tropes isn't that correct? Uh, it's absolutely true. I mean, for me. Uh, I actually was giving a course for students uh, on the signs and symptoms of anti-Semitism. And I said, there are these two basic ideas that all Jewish property is stolen and that the Jews believe themselves superior and are unfair to everybody else. And once Mm -hmm. you believe that, once you know those things, you can identify anti-Semitism wherever you see it. When AOC won her stunning primary here in the US, in New York, and she had her first national interview on NPR where they brought up the issue of Palestine. She said that these two signs are the only two things she claims to know about the entire Middle East. Imagine that. She has a degree in international relations, and yet the only things she claims to know about the Middle East is that Israel, AKA the Jews, is stealing property from stealing Palestinian land and not allowing Palestinians to access their homes, both of which are entirely fictional and both of which have thousand millennia old roots. And it's not, Mm. by the way, because she's a core anti-Semite herself. She's just a parrot. I mean, she auditioned. She was a, you know, she's a script reader for the Justice Democrats, which is a fundamentally anti-Semitic movement. And that's how you get, I mean, look, you have, There's only one government in the Middle East with ethnic diversity. When somebody calls that one the apartheid state, you know Mm. you're listening to bigotry and hate. And you have two Congress people who are just voicing these opinions and being allowed to, you know, they they don't get stripped of their seats. Oh, no, Mm. we're going to strip the woman who mentioned Jewish space lasers, which, of course, she never said. Yeah, to Martin, he never said that. But Ilan Omar has said many Similar thing. Yeah, it's all about the Benjamins, Jews and money, Jews and control. They're voting for Israel. They've forgotten what country they live in. Um, Look at Israel's Israel hypnotizing the world to its evil deeds, which she said on Twitter is a paraphrased phrase. It's paraphrased from Mein Kampf. It's literally paraphrased from Mein Kampf. Wow. Not now. Um, 
So we're, we're running out of time, unfortunately, now. Um, we, I don't know if you got these questions in advance. Uh, yes, we have two questions we ask all of our guests. We ask them if there's a piece of art that's important to them, like if it could be a poem, a movie, a sculpture, and a painting. recipe. And then we ask them if there's a recipe that they're famous for and what is it? Okay, I was not warned in advance. So, I, oh. <laughs> so but I, okay. when you said a work of art, the thing that jumped into my mind is a um, a painting that depicts Mount Sinai using the five books of Moses: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses form the the, the mountain. And it's a wonderful, like that imagery, the idea that you can recapture the God's revelation, you can recapture that attachment just by opening the pages of, of the, you know, the five books of Moses are divine dictation. It's God's word, all of it. And we just, you know, just you can open it and recapture that connection. So there's the work of art. Now, did you ask me about a recipe? Do you cook? And if you cook, what I, are your favorite? Okay, so I'll give you, instead of telling you about all the healthy stuff, I'm, I'm now obligated to make due to uh, dietary restrictions. In fact, this is a violation, but the only, this is perhaps the only successful thing I've done. I had a daughter get engaged recently and uh, we had a little reception actually at the uh, husband-to-be's house, uh, the, his, his parents, but we all, we helped uh, prepare and I made chicken poppers. Uh, a, a chicken popper is a, uh, it's pieces of uh, chicken breast that are bite-sized and breaded and then uh, with egg and breaded again. And then you put it in and in, in fry it in oil. And uh, those were a complete sellout. Oh yeah. So at the reception. Oh, yeah. So no, I, I guess that's the only, that is the only dish I am famous for because I, I, I commented to somebody me and, and having a cooking success story is about like the one time I caught the fly ball in right field. Okay, so we don't understand that that American uh, sporting reference, but I, I think I get the, yes, the, yes. the idea. Yeah, you drop, the, 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 a, a guy like me regularly would drop the ball. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I think it was a miracle, basically, what happened. Something like that, yes. And the poppers were really good, so therefore. All right, I think we have to do them. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great, I think we'd like to speak to you again yes. uh, in the near, in where, the very near future. Where can people, are you on Twitter? Or where, yeah, uh, where can Instagram? people find you? I am on Twitter at Y Mencken. The organization is on Twitter at CJ Values, coalitionforjewishvalues.org or cjvalues.org for short is where to find us online. Yakovmencken.com is my personal site. Uh, it, I'm not hard to find. Okay, okay. all right. Well, we'll put up those sites on the, on, so everyone will get to see them. But right. thank you so much for being with us, particularly this week. And Thanks so much. And we're so glad, by the way, that everything worked out so well. Yes, it's, it's a miracle that everybody came out safely, and it's wonderful. Everyone was praying for that. He's such a lovely guy and uh, yeah Hope, I think know. we could have talked for a very long time. What a really really nice man and I, I think we may have to try and um, back engineer his chicken poppers. They sounded really they sounded very really nice, great. Nice. So you, you read a story of the Wall Street Journal. See how I find these stories about leaving California film. Isn't that funny? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Anyway very interesting. You wouldn't yes. be happy out of California. Uh, well we'll see. So anyway th this one caught my eye. Um, the headline was Florida is living with COVID 
and freedom. And the, the first paragraph, I'll read the first paragraph that kind of sets the scene for this, for this story. The Omicron surge has triggered, this from the Wall Street Journal, the Omicron surge has triggered a mutation in the conventional wisdom about COVID-19. The virus is here to stay. Oncologist Ezekiel Emanuel and two other experts who advised the Biden transition proclaimed in a January article for the Journal of the American Medical Association. That means no more perpetual state of emergency. The goal for the new normal does not include eradication or elimination. So this is a very new way of thinking, right? So this is the Biden administration advisors. Oh, yeah. This is how they're talking. Now, the interesting thing here with this article that, that um, the, our friend has written, James Toronto, is that Joseph Ladapo, uh, a doctor, said this very thing and spoke like this, but he said it in USA Today in March of 2020. Two years ago. Two years ago, at the very beginning of this whole pandemic. And here's what he said. He's a doctor. And he says, um, please don't believe politicians who say we can control this with a few weeks of shutdown. To contain a virus with shutdowns, you must either go big, which is what China did, or you don't go at all. Here is my prescription for local and state leaders. Keep shutdowns short, keep the economy going, keep schools in session, keep jobs intact, and focus single-mindedly on building the capacity we need to survive into our healthcare and who, who, system. Who is this person, Anne? Who oh, is? this this Dr. Ladapo, as I said, who was quoted in, in, in March of 2020, was then a professor at UCLA's medical school and a clinician on COVID's frontline. And he had written this. Uh, and by the way, what happened then was, and I, I'm going to tell this in a kind of a funny way, what happened then was that uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida you know, became aware of this mm-hmm. this doctor. As I said, he was a, a um, teaching at the UCLA's medical school, a professor of medicine there, um, and it has appointed him. This man has now been appointed and has become the Surgeon General of Florida. But what's really interesting is and how is that re- how is that received with the liberal media in Florida? Anne? Well, I think it's important to point out a few things about Dr. Ladapo. He's a native of Nigeria. He studied chemistry at Wake Forest, where he was the captain of the track and field team. Then he went on to Harvard, you know, a bit of a loser, basically, and earned both a medical degree and a doctorate in health policy. He's worked as a professor of medicine at UCLA, as I said, exactly, before he became became the Surgeon General of Florida. Now, the Palm Beach Post... Which is basically the New York Times of Florida. Basically the New York Times of Florida. Guess how they describe this man of medicine? They called him a... Crackpot. A crackpot. A crackpot. This is the world we're living in now. But by the way, it's interesting, the criticism that we've had, there's a lot of criticism out there about this Dr. Ladapo. You know, as I said, he's called a crackpot by the Palm Beach Post. Um, you know, this is, this, this is kind of funny. And, and one of the things that they said about him, they've said, one of the things they've said about him is that, you know, that he's not an epidemiologist. Um, I think he's actually a cardiologist. But, but, but it's kind of funny that they would say that because these are the very same people who think that it's okay that Barbara Ferrer... Uh, the, pub- the head of public health in Los Angeles. Head of public health in Los Angeles, who is not a doctor. She's not has, even a medical doctor. No, either. she has a doctorate in social work. Um, and the idea that, that, but it's fine to have her. And by the way, just to mention, because you know, she, I'm a, she's a very firm favorite on this show. Mm. She's not a medical doctor, but she does earn four hundred eighty-four thousand dollars a year. That is actually translates into one thousand three hundred twenty-nine dollars a day. Mm. Nice, nice work if you can get yeah. it. But. Um, but it's very interesting what this man is saying. So actually, what's really interesting, and I, what caught my eye as well, Phil, as about 
Dr. Ladapo yeah, is not, that not, he lived, not anti-vaccine, by the oh, way. Oh, no, he's not anti-vaccine at all. In yes. fact, he's actually very, very pro-vaccine. He just doesn't believe in mandating vaccines yes. and particularly mandating this particular vaccine. Yeah. Um, he lived in Los Angeles and... Uh, you know, uh, yes. So tell us about his. Experience. So he lived in Los Angeles. He's ma- he was married. He's married, and he has children, and he has these boys. And basically, he did how, this is how he described the lockdown in Los Angeles in the Wall Street Journal. In the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles has been hardcore in terms of its lockdown and restrictions. He says the closing of the schools when the data was indicating that kids were ex- extremely low risk. That just completely looked like a bad decision. We have boys, and they have to go outside. He went on to say. So basically, when he did get involved, when he did get offered this job to go to Florida. When he did get offered this job to go, to go to Florida, to go to Tallahassee, he was nervous about telling the wife. And when he did tell her, she lit up. She was delighted because when the schools in Los Angeles mandated mask wearing for children, his wife and himself both decided no way. And this is somebody, by the way, will I yeah. mention, he was a professor of medicine. Professor of medicine, crackpot, of course, according to the mm-hmm. Pam's, yeah. Pam, Pam Beach uh, newspapers. But... I love this, this, this just just to get to the end of this I love this thing he, he was yeah. asked he was asked to compare what it's like now he's living in Florida obviously what was it like what's the difference between living in Los Angeles living in California and living in Florida and he said basically and I'm just I'm paraphrasing this he said it was like being under a blanket a heavy blanket a we heavy blanket that. we remember going we remember going to Abbott Kinney during the George Floyd riots and the pandemic and it was just like this ghost town this feeling of oppression yeah. as he says there was the atmosphere, the expectation uh, uh, that you had to take these precautions. It was a very heavy, very year, heavy, sort of an opp- oppressive atmosphere there. And I love the story about him getting the job in Tallahassee and then telling his, dreading telling his wife that they're going to have to move, or maybe they weren't going to have to move because she wouldn't move. And he goes home and tells her, and what does she say? Oh, she lit up. She was delighted about it. But basically, he makes this contrast. What's the contrast between living in California, living in Florida? So he said this blanket. There was this bl- oppressive blanket, and he said you're under this blanket of oppression when you're in California. And what do you wonder when you're in Florida? You're under the sun. Yeah. That's how he describes it. I love that. And just for those of you maybe who are sort of cynically thinking, well, sure, everyone's dying in Florida. Here's what you need to know. So, yeah, people died in Florida. And don't forget, of course, Florida would have, a, you know, a yeah. much larger but, population but, but of old people. The, he does the age of do- he did, justice So figures. his people from his office sent James Taranto, who wrote this really great article, as I said, read the whole thing. Um, so the US age-adjusted COVID mortality rates throughout the pandemic. Florida comes in at number 30. Number 30, America has 50 states, don't forget. Mm-hmm. So it comes in at 30. California does slightly better at 30, at 33rd. So not a huge lot different, by the mm-hmm. way, but 33rd. And don't forget, one of them had all the restrictions. One of them had none of the restrictions. Another place, though, that had a lot of restrictions, a huge amount of lockdown, New was York. New York. I did it too. It New York. really well. Came in at number seven yeah. as the worst, seven, seven as in, by the way, remember, number one is the worst place in the world to be. Number seven. So, so New York did really badly in terms of deaths. Um, so kind of just, an, just a very interesting thing, but a lovely article. And, um, and I can see why uh, people are migrating to Florida in huge numbers. Mm, is that a hint? Is that a hint, Anne? That's a little hint, maybe. But, uh, well, we're, we're, we're in California for the next while. I, I want to finish up by giving you just this really, very really quick um Recipe. Re, re, no recipe, recipe. You know what they call it? No, like no recipe, yeah, recipe. That, yeah, what's that? Or no Basically, recipe. Basically, so it's, it's very simple. You don't need yeah. to really. All you need is potatoes, olive oil, and sea salt Sounds or good. kosher salt. And so basically, you want to heat up the oven. And this is Hasselback potatoes. If you haven't made them, and I know everyone's heard of no them. No Hassel, Hasselback potatoes? Hasselback potatoes. Hush, no, no, hush no. now, Philip. So what you want to do with those potatoes is you're going to put them, look at what I'm doing there. I'm putting them on a spoon. Um, and you'll see why I'm doing that. Because what you want to do is make these short, these thin, thin sliced 
um, incisions. incisions, but you don't want to go through to the bottom of the potato. Let me take, tell you from personal experience, if you don't have the spoon and you have a sharp knife, you will go through to the bottom of the potato. So the spoon is a very clever idea. Um, so use the spoon and do that and mm. basically make those little incisions, then rub oil all over the potatoes, olive oil all over the potatoes, and then try and get the sprinkle oil and the... try and get, well, you won't be able to do that until the potato is cooked a bit film. So then you want to rub kosher salt or sea salt. I was using really nice Atlantic sea salt on those really heavy sea salt. Then get that into the oven, the preheated oven, mad hot oven, 400 or whatever, at least 400. Mm-hmm. Get it in there. Uh, it'll take about an hour. I would take them out halfway through and pour some more, more oil on them. Try to get that oil into those crevices. And, and uh, honestly, they, they're just my new thing. I just can't get enough of them. So we've come to the end of the podcast, film. Yes, uh, jolly good. Um, we've got a great interview for you next week, actually. Yes, an yes. An LA-specific interview. And uh, we'd like you to tell us, maybe in the comments on YouTube, uh, if you think the podcasts are too long, too short, just right, anything else you would like us to cover. Um, and uh, also, we'd also like you to go to mysonhunter.com and help us get that movie out. Please. Thank you so much. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Thanks, bye.